Welcome to the Prince of Peace podcast. We're here to grow in faith, connect in community, and serve the world. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Grace, peace, and joy be unto you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The passage that we have from Matthew's Gospel for today is always one of those challenging ones. We read it on face value, and it's impossible not to hear harsh judgment in the telling. It involves a subject that we're used to feeling guilty or adulation about in our wealthy society. We praise the wise investors that gain large returns on their investments, and we shake our heads at those who miss out on fortunes or even worse, squander their money. How often have we heard stories like the one my friend used to tell about his grandfather who had a friend who was starting a company and wanted him to invest in it, and he said, no, 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 I don't think that new fangled plastic stuff's going anywhere. I don't want anything to do with your Tupperware. I remember myself having a strong urge to try to get in on the IPO for Google back in 2004, but deciding I didn't want to take that kind of a risk. Ah, to have invested $1,000 then. One estimator I saw estimated that writing out an initial investment of $1,000 in that IPO would be worth $1.1 million today. Really wish I hadn't looked that up. Ah, you foolish servant. It's easy to play out these scenarios and hear a harshness in the judgment from God for how we use our resources based upon this text. But I don't actually think that's what's going on here in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. The issue in this text is not the wisdom of our actions, It's the quality of our faith. The judgment is not upon the poor judgment of actions taken. The judgment is upon the lack of faith in the master. The master's disappointment is communicated in this text in the assumption of the servant about the character of the master. The servant's putting all kinds of assumptions about how the master is going to react, and he is afraid. Listen to this colorful tirade that the biblical commentator Robert Capon puts in the mouth of the master here in response to the servant's assumptions about the harshness of the master. He's got some parenthetical other biblical quotes to try to tie it into the gospel. He writes, No, roars the nobleman, twice as angry as anything Arthur ever imagined. I will judge you out of your own mouth. You are not a good boy. You're not even a good weasel. If you knew I was such a tough customer, why didn't you at least put my money into a savings account? What? You thought I'd be mad at a measly 4.5%? You think I'm not madder at 0%? But you know something? That's not really what I'm mad about. Look, Arthur, I invited you into a fiduciary relationship with me. That's fiduciary. F, 
F-I-D, as in fides in Latin, as in faith in plain English. I didn't ask you to make money, I asked you to do business, to exercise a little pragmatic trust that I meant you well and that I wouldn't mind if you took some risks with my gift of a lifetime. But what did you do? You decided you had to be more afraid of me than of the risks. You decided. You played it safe because of some imaginary fear. And so now, instead of having gotten yourself a nice new life as mayor of at least a small city, you have only the crummy little excuse for a life you started with. As a matter of fact, Arthur, you haven't even got that because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take what I gave you and just for fun to show the outrageousness of grace as in the laborers of the vineyard, I'm going to give it to that guy over there who already has more than he knows what to do with. And you know why I'm going to do that? First of all, to remind everybody that when I give you a gift, grace, forgiveness, I expect you to do business with it, to keep it moving, to forgive others as you have been forgiven. See the Lord's Prayer. Not just to keep it to yourself in some dark napkin, some low-risk spiritual life in which you neither sin much nor love much, see Luke 7. But second, I'm going to give him your gift to show everybody that I never really cared about results anyway. The laborers in the vineyard, again, the gift of grace is not a reward for hard work or good behavior. In fact, it's a lark, a joke, a hilariously inequitable largesse. It is, in a word, a gift. Don't you see, Arthur? It's all a game. All that matters is that you play at all, not that you play well or badly. You could have earned a million with the money I gave you, or you could have earned two cents. You could have even blown it on the horses for all I care. At least that way you would have been a gambler after my own heart. But when you crawl in here and insult me, me, Mr. Risk himself, Jesus the Vindicating Judge, By telling me you decided that I couldn't be trusted enough for you to gamble on a two-bit loss, that I was some legalistic type who went only by the books, judgment by law instead of grace, well, you see what he does here. Obviously, he goes over the top, but to make a really important point, Jesus is telling him this story with eye-grabbing consequences because the stakes are high here. He's about to go to Jerusalem to make his most extravagant, fool-hearted investment in a sinful and lost generation. Jesus is going to die for these people that are still struggling to understand who he is and why he is here. And he's going to leave them with these gifts of grace. Here is my body. Here is my blood given for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other religious leaders of the day have God all jumbled up in the disciples' heads. They've been taught to fear God more than trust God. They've been taught judgment over grace again and again. 
recoil from the presence of God rather than lean in. Jesus is telling them that it's all different. The lightning-zapping deity is not their God. And this is why Jesus came and why he is about to die. And the effectiveness of this mission and message depended upon them trusting in the love and the grace of their master and sharing this love and grace in the radical, unconditional way that he was about to share it on the cross. Paul reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here we are in this time of the church here where we point towards the coming of Christ in the fullness of time, not yet knowing that we still wait in the already but not yet reality of his promises, and we ask, so what shall we do? And the answer we find here is to not be afraid of sharing God's grace freely as it was freely given to us. All means all, so we are bold and loving in our service. God's frustration, we learn here, is not with us when we dare to share his gifts with the wrong people that might possibly squander the gift. God's frustration is when we withhold the gift because we question whether or not someone is worthy of it. The point of the story is that this is maddening foolishness to God because it fails to recognize what the gift is in the first place, a gift, freely given. Church, just think of the options. Is there joy to be found in being gatekeepers of who is worthy to be here? Or is there joy to be found in throwing a block party every week where the banquet table is open for all to receive the full mercy and grace of an extravagant God? We have young people here today to receive their First Communion. We're very careful in how we describe First Communion these days because we don't want to perpetuate the calculations of old that somehow withheld the sacrament until some magical time when we as the church deemed children capable of understanding the sacrament in what we felt was an acceptable manner. Instead, we encourage now parents to pay attention to when their children are desirous of this free gift of grace. And if your children really want the sacrament, then we're happy to help you explain it to them in simple ways that they can embrace what is actually a mystery to us all. And then come here to the welcome table. We have to keep flipping the script on the gatekeeping and instead have faith to trust in the extravagant grace that God is trusting us to share with others freely. There are lots of people out there today who are giving up on the church. They say our heyday has passed. There's been too much damage done by an organization that hoarded all of its gifts for itself and shared too little for too long other than guilt, shame, and judgment. And there is certainly damage done by all of these things. But I don't think we have to see it in this way. 
because we have faith in a God who's making all things new. We have faith in a God who has taken death and fear, guilt and shame and nailed them to a cross and on the third day raised them up again, transformed into the radical power of unconditional love. I have to say I've actually never been more excited to be a leader in the church than I am today. I'm excited because I feel like we're clearer than we have ever been about the kind of church that we are called to be as a grace-filled gathering for everyone. In a world that keeps reducing everything into divisions that diminish us, we as the church continue to be called to open our arms to be a different kind of gathering where all can find restoration and healing and inclusion, even resurrection itself. Jesus is imploring all of us today to keep inviting, keep sharing, keep our faith in the extravagance of God. Come to learn and to live and love like Jesus, where all means all, where generosity is contagious because love and life win. And with this kind of hope, and with the audacity of these promises, we can join Jesus in the restoration of the world, filling it with the exponentially growing gifts of peace and grace for all. Amen.